1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Airport, the year's most widely read novel, becomes today's most exciting, most timely motion picture. Airport, big scale in every way, has the biggest all-star cast ever assembled for a single universal motion picture. Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, Gene Seberg, Jacqueline Bisson, George Kennedy, Helen Hayes, Van Heflin, Maureen Stapleton, Barry Nelson, Lloyd Nolan, Donna Winter. The pilot from your flight 45 made a shortcut across the field, and he didn't make it. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, when the snow melts in April, we'll get it out. What the hell do you think I'm doing about it? Outselling any novel of recent years, translated into 14 languages, Arthur Haley's Airport was written for the screen and directed by Academy Award winner George Seaton. It has seven stories tied into one. Dean Martin is pilot Vernon Demarest, loved by stewardess Jacqueline Bissett and by his wife, Barbara Hale. You're sure? Do you mean am I sure I'm pregnant? Or am I sure you're the father? Burt Lancaster is airport manager Mel Bakersfeld at the crisis stage with his socialite wife, Donna Winter. A week ago, I didn't know we'd have the worst storm in six years. You've always got some damn excuse. Gene Seberg is Tanya, his devoted assistant. I'll miss you. Will you? Enough not to let me go? The first lady of the American stage, Helen Hayes, plays the mind-boggling, huggable, perpetual stowaway, Ada Quonset. Oh, my dear, I couldn't possibly afford a ticket. Van Heflin gives a superb performance as the desperate Guerrero, matched by Maureen Stapleton as his wife. Stop dreaming. Just hold on to the job. I'll do it right this time. I won't mess it up. And lusty, gutsy Patroni has to be Academy Award winner George Kennedy. I'll have this mother out of here by midnight. Is there any chance that the, that the plane would stand the explosion? Oh, she might still fly. But... The sudden decompression at 30,000 feet is something you got to see to believe. Now, sit down and be quiet. Oh, you hurt me. You hurt me. Stop it. You're hysterical. 
For nothing if you explode that bomb. For crisis authenticity, airport has no equal. For mounting tension, airport has no equal. Decompression making emergency descent. For sheer fingernail biting suspense, airport has no equal. You are leaving my area. Contact Cleveland Center, 117.5. Good luck. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined by my buddy, Sean Whalen. Welcome aboard, Sean. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here again. Pleasure to have you. And as we were talking about before we started to record, uh, I, you know, recently I kind of, kind of was doing some dystopian movies from the 70s. You know, I'm reliving, reliving a lot of movies from my, uh, you know, adolescence, effectively. Uh, and I dragged you along for Willard, which was fun for us to do. And now I decided I want to do some disaster movies, which were really big in the 70s. And I invited you on to do the, I guess, the, the, the grandfather of them, Airport. This was terrific for me because I thought when we originally discussed it that I had seen this. I don't think I have. Or if I did, I was so young that I don't remember like i'm remembering certain sequences of it but i didn't remember the whole it was it was this really was a very fresh wash for me all right so that's cool so we got a pair of fresh eyes on it and as again as we were talking about before i remember seeing this i did not see this in the movie theater in 1970 when it came out but i did see it in 1973 when they showed it on television i think i seem to remember it being a two-night event but it might have just been like a three-hour uh you know one night blockbuster movie but it was it was you know it was an event when this was on tv and i remember being riveted to the tv set uh and i have very very fond memories of it and i know i've seen it at least once in between then and now and then i watched it for this um and my opinion was a little different watching it this time and not tremendously i still really enjoyed it but but it, it does seem to me a little more dated than I thought it was. And that doesn't bother me so much. But when I'm trying to do a review, I could see where, you know, some younger viewers may, if they're not into older movies, they may not be into this for that reason. This feels to me almost like it's the last gasp of old Hollywood with all the stars and, and the, you know, the just the epic nature of how it's being presented. Even, you know, the, the score is very epic and, you know, everything that's going on, even like when the credits are on and you're seeing, you know, just mundane airport activities yeah, but you're hearing this very, very dramatic overture going on. Uh, so so it, it definitely has that air of old Hollywood to me, uh, especially, you know, when you consider the cast. I, one of the things that really surprised me on this, and it may be where I have been seeing this for the first time and this being a very a fresh watch for me, I, I totally agree with you on, like, the fact that it felt dated to a certain extent. But there were some things that I thought that were in it that were 
in comparison, I think, to how many disaster movies and how many sensational movies that I think we've seen that were more grounded that I thought was really interesting in this. And, you know, as we talk through, I'll, I'll share more of that. But um, I, it was it was an interesting watch for me because there's definitely some spots where there was like dated language or dated concepts and things like that, especially in interactions. I mean, we'll have to talk about their concepts of relationships in general from 1970 filmmaking. Uh, but I I really there was a lot there's a lot to talk about in this film. Well, I, I think the first thing that that caught my eye in watching it, like, you know, for the perspective of reviewing it was that it takes a while for the action to really get rolling. This movie isn't, you know, even though it's it's a disaster movie, but it's not a, a nonstop thrill ride, uh, which is what I think they developed as time went on in these. This is more of a character study. You know, we, we spend the first, I don't know, 40 minutes, 45 minutes of this movie really just learning who the characters are and getting to know them and trying to, you know, to, to go along on their ride and just kind of, you know, a lot of it, from that perspective is just, hey, this is what it's like in a huge airport in a snowstorm, and this is how we run it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it doesn't really have that, that disaster movie feel to it initially. Uh, and then, you know, eventually it, it picks up as it goes on. And I don't think, from my own personal point of view, that that loses anything for it. I, I think it gains from having you care about these characters. And... You know, when you, you know, we're going to talk in a few minutes about the cast. Uh, you know, these these are people who are very easy to care about because they're they're all you know, not all, but most of them are people who you're just comfortable with in your home. Uh, you know, people who you're very familiar with, and they all fit their parts really well. Um, you know, what's what's your take on that? So, I mean, for me, I, I actually totally agree with you because I think it was wasn't until like actually halfway through the film that the plane takes off. <laughs> Which was, which was intriguing to me. I'm a big fan of Stephen King's novels, and especially some of his bigger ones, the longer ones like The Stand and It and things like that. And I'm right with you. I, one of those things I was always drawn to was Stephen King's. I will say that there's some of his novels where early on there's a bit of what I call the Stephen King trudge, and it's not every book, but sometimes you because of the fact that it's slow moving. And it's all about getting to know the characters, getting to know the interpersonal relationships before he really messes with them. This film didn't have the trudge. I actually felt like the first half or you know whatever it was that we were getting introduced to the characters was essential. And there was enough going on. Like, I mean, these people, everybody's cheating on everybody and everybody's, you know, I mean, there's the old lady who's like sneaking onto the plane and there's the guy with the... Uh, you know, I, I actually I'll, I'll wait to talk about our, our one of our main protagonists in this, but everybody had an interesting story. So you're watching these characters and really getting to know them. And what I thought it did a great job pacing wise was you didn't stay on anybody too long. Like you stayed a certain amount of time to ex extend their story. Then you moved on to somebody else who was fresh. And then you they took you back to somebody partway through the movie. So that way you're like, I want to know more about that character that you like left me off on the pacing. I thought was really great. Cause it's hard to do that with that type of introduction. Um, and I mentioned the Steve, like I'm a Stephen King fan. It's like funny to say that I'm a fan, but I mentioned that there's sometimes a chapter or two. That's a trudge in when you're getting to know the characters before you hit that point where it's like, 
okay, now we're really going to mess with them. This didn't have that. I really enjoyed the pace. Now, I, I'm also a big Stephen King fan from way back. I haven't read any of the more recent things, but, you know, back in, uh, in, in my freshman year in high school, uh, we had to read a certain number of books before the first, you know, before September when the school school year began. And uh, one of the books that I read for my freshman year in high school was Salem's Lot. And I became a huge Stephen King fan from that moment on. Uh, and as he came out with new books, I kept picking them up. And I always thought that he had the right idea because he would start off by introducing you to a character, often talking in, in the uh, first person. Uh, and getting letting you know that character a little bit, and you know, get kind of just pulling you in right away. And I think that's that's a real critical, important part of. I think it, character is something that gets lost in film sometimes. Uh, I think the films that are the most rewatchable to me, the ones that I keep going back to, are the ones where characters really matter to me. Um, there's a lot of films with you know great special effects and all those type of things where where it's almost like characters in the background, and those are great for like a one or two viewing, you know, for the spe spectacle of it. Mm -hmm. There's not that substance. This film, I think, really captured. And it's a lot of what we're talking about that we love with Stephen King. They, it's captured a lot of substance where there were characters that I really wasn't one. It was all of them. I really wanted to follow all of them and see what was going to happen with them. And it was knowing the kind of movie that it was going to be. I like was worried for so many of them because I'm like, oh no, they're setting up this like <laughs> endearing moment. And I, I think that's one of the things that I appreciated about this film. I'm so used to like this foreboding sense of what is going to happen that I think I walked into this film not knowing where the ending was going to go. And cause I had no clue where the ending was gonna go. And I was really like putting like, oh, that guy's going to be gone. This guy might be gone. She's in trouble. Um, I really had this sense of based on today's sensibilities with film, I was like predicting the death pool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I was I loved that I was wrong in so many areas. This film was it felt like strangely. It's strange to say that it's a 1970 film and a 70s film. And it felt like it was doing something unique and different, but it really did in comparison to what my expectations are for this type of movie today. Yeah, well, it, it did not have, and spoilers for anybody, by the way, for a 50-year-old movie, uh, but uh, it didn't have the body count mm -hmm. that you would expect when you hear the words disaster movie. Uh, but it, it, it had the drama. And, you know, I, what I was mentioning earlier uh, about you know getting to know the characters there's three three of the main actors uh in this movie are people who even when i was as young as i was when i saw this were people who i had familiar familiarity with and was just so comfortable with that it was easy to follow along with them and kind of get to know you know what their characters were for this movie and like them and that's and we'll talk about them one at a time but that's burt lancaster dean martin and george kennedy those are three people who I almost feel like I'd be very comfortable sitting down and having dinner with. You know, like they'd be welcome in my home anytime. Um, it, it just made it easy to, to, to be invested in this movie. Jacqueline Bissett and Maureen Stapleton played some really great roles, too. Oh, absolutely. Gene, is it Seberg? Gene Seberg, who I would not be familiar with really otherwise. 
but she was terrific in this. And she, yeah. you know, but she didn't have that automatic familiarity to me because I wouldn't have known who she was. No. But she played her part and she was, you know, you became very comfortable with her very quickly. Uh, she reminded me a lot it's of a Tippi Hedren. Oh, that's a great comparison, Tippi Hedren. Um, it's, and I, I think, I think where you're really nailing that is, I think Tippi Hedren, anytime I've seen her in films, I've, I felt this, she, her way that she portrays characters, I really care about her. She plays like a diverse character with who's like three dimensional. Nothing wooden, nothing fake. I feel like I'm hanging out with her. And I think you're talking, you're really talking about this with like Bert and Dean and, uh, and George Kennedy. Like these are people that you can place in like, they're really working there. This is really their job. They really have lives that are being impacted by their, their work choices. And I feel like the female roles in all this had that same feeling. Yes, that's where the film, if we're going to talk about an area where it gets dated, you're starting to deal with the fact that these are all people living in 1970. So it's got some 1970 sensibilities to it, um, including some of the stuff that the women are just very content to allow. <laughs> yes. This, yes. In this film. Oh, there's, there's but, definitely some, some male female uh, relationship things that would not work in 2023 uh, that worked in 1970. And I think you have to kind of take it from that perspective, but just the same, I don't think, they don't minimize the strength of the women, which, you know, some movies in that era would. They aren't just damsels in distress. There's been recent films that have been done that have been set in the 70s, though, that play on those tropes. So it's one of the areas where, while it feels dated, and I agree with that, it also feels like, well, you could shoot this today. And if you're basing it on the book and really trying to stick close to the fact that it takes place in 1970, you can capture a lot of the things that I'm saying are dated because you almost have to in order to really make it feel like it's taking place in 1970. And when I say it feels dated, just to expand on that a little bit, I'm thinking uh, the pacing that you and I both enjoyed about this movie is different from the pacing you'd get today. Yep. So that's why it feels dated. The cinematography, uh, which I think is beautiful, actually, but it's very of its time. It's, you know, it has that cinemascope feeling about it. So for that reason, it kind of feels dated. Uh, as far as the styles and the relationships and things, this movie could be made today, as far as that goes, and be a period piece. It, it couldn't, you know, you couldn't have the characters be the way they are and have it take place in 2023, but a movie in 2023 that takes place in 1970 could easily show things the way they do in here. If you're listening to this and you haven't actually watched this, I would pause this, go and watch it and join us because when you mentioned the CinemaScope, that's one of the things that I love about it. And you wouldn't get that today and you're right, but I also think this film benefits greatly from it because when you take a look that in 1970, they were able to do what they did with the special effects that they did. I think it's something that more, it's a beautiful film. I, I look at this one, um, uh, probably the closest compar comparison I can put to this is um, when I look at things like Superman, the movie, and I don't want to make it all about superhero movies and stuff because we don't <laughs> put those together. But what I mean is there was something, there's a beauty of that movie that, yes, it's dated, but it's something that like you wouldn't do today, but you can admire the beauty of what they captured at that time. This film has a lot of that with what they did, especially with the airplane sequences. There's certain things that they did that 
what I didn't feel like I was able to be transported where I didn't feel like I'm seeing a plane model in the sky. And that's hard to capture when you recognize the fact that they did not have the technology available to them then that we have today to do so many things with CGI and things like that to make it, you know, feel more real. Yeah. And and it's a very beautiful film for what it accomplished. Oh, I totally agree. And and I, you know, again, there's things about this movie that when you sit and you examine it, you say, you know, obviously the stakes are high for the people on the plane. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm going to, you know, obviously, again, I want to just mention spoilers, and I agree with Sean. I, I strongly recommend that people watch this movie because I think it's terrific. So if you haven't seen it, you, you know, you may not want to listen and hear different things because we are going to spoil things. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to jump over to uh, George Kennedy's character, Petroni. Uh, what he's doing, uh, the stakes aren't that incredibly high. I mean, there's a lot of money at stake, I guess, because they're running the risk of, of uh, destroying, I believe it's a 707, uh, because he's he's got to get it off the runway to allow room for the plane that's in trouble to land. Uh, and he's risking tearing it apart and, you know, by, by overtaxing the engines because it's stuck in the snow. Uh, and if he can't do it, they're going to use uh, bulldozers to push it off and that's going to cause all sorts of damage uh, but when you think about it you know in the grand scheme of things that's not a life or death situation and yet it feels like the stakes are really high when you're watching it and there's an, a kinetic energy to him while he's doing what he does to get that plane off the runway that just you know it, it really just felt great to me to watch I just you know it, it had me riveted morality it's funny morality is such a big part of this you know we, there's relationship morality which is thrown out the window in certain cases but you you see that each situation is unique and different it's not just cookie cutter um but then there's also morality as far as job and, and how you put your job and your reputation and also the ethics of there's people on a plane and there's people on a plane who are going to be in trouble and there's a decision as far as the right and the wrong way to handle this. And that's what was interesting about this and gripping about it, because I think I was expecting a certain ending. And that's something that's great when a film can transport you and you're like, I feel everybody here's in danger. You know, we're, we're transported at that point. We know these people are all alive. They all live. What I'm saying is I'm the actors are alive afterwards. So they have to transport you and make you believe these characters are in real danger that every person on the plane has has a stake in this, but also that the people on the ground have a reason to be motivated. And that's where the relationship building, I think, was really important before. If the plane took off within the first 15 minutes, we would have lost interactions between the people on the ground and the people in the sky. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that the people on the ground not only have interpersonal relationships with each other from bosses to, you know, straight on down to, you know, what George Kennedy's job is. Um, you, those are really, really critical. But also the fact that Dean Martin and Burt Lancaster have interactions and that you really care about their friendship and their relationship. But also the fact that these are two people that, you know, poke each other from time to time because of their way of of their overall view of life and as you would with any friendship. And I felt like I really understood to your point about hanging out with them. I understood what hanging out with them would be like. And sometimes you'd sit back, like if you and I were hanging out with Burke Lancaster and Dean Martin, these characters, Mel and Vernon, 
there's going to be points in time where you're like, well, let's sit back and watch this show. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know that these two are going to go at it from time to time. And that's fun. And George Kennedy is going to be the same thing. Uh, he's going to be that character where there's going to be times where he's going out with them and they're poking fun at him. And it's you feel like you understand what their dynamic is, but that they all like each other. And they all respect each other into, you know, to the point where they will give some elasticity to the humanity of all of them because they're all flawed characters. Right. Um, which that's humanity. Right. You and I are flawed. Um, that makes I, them three dimensional. That's that's what makes it interesting to watch. them. Yeah. And that's something I really loved about this film. I actually found myself. I'm like, I like all these people. And there's times where I want to smack them upside the head. <laughs> <laughs> And it's such a great part of this. Well, let's, I mean, let's, let's look at the characters a little bit and I'll just kind of give a little of the dynamic. Now, Burt Lancaster is Mel Bakersfield and he's the airport manager. So now he's never in any physical danger, but he's running this airport and he's, you know, his job is at stake the whole time and, and he's, you know, dealing with this storm and then he's dealing with this situation with the, the plane. And we're going to get into that in a moment. Uh, Dean Martin is Vernon Demarest. He's actually the brother-in-law of Burt Lancaster. And he's there to check ride the plane. He's a captain, but he's there to watch the other captain to see how he does his job. Uh, and you could see there's a little friction between him and the other captain, who is Barry Nelson, who he's one of those guys who's that guy. And when you see him, you're like, oh, I recognize him. I've seen him in a hundred things, but I don't know what I've seen him in. I can only, I can remember, I believe, an episode of The Twilight Zone I saw him in. Uh, but I couldn't tell you, you know, Different, although I know I've seen him many, many times. Uh, now, Burt Lancaster's character and Dean Martin's character are both having marital problems. Uh, Burt Lancaster's marriage is just kind of over, and his wife comes and visits him and explains to him, you know, that you know we'll just do this quietly and not not you know torture the children with it. But Dean Martin is having an affair with Jacqueline Bissett, and yeah, you know who could blame him? Uh, but but uh, you know, like I think his wife doesn't know their marriage is over, and then at the end she kind of comes to that realization because circumstances show her how much he he cares for Jacqueline Bissett, who happens to be pregnant with his baby. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on here, and 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 like you said, there's a morality play going on but it's twofold it's the morality of their personal lives and their relationships with their wives and their girlfriends and each other but then there's also the morality of doing their jobs Burt Lancaster has all all these questions and all these things trying to do the right thing with the airport and how he how he's running it uh and Dean Martin is is you know initially he's kind of got a a little bit of a, an axe to grind with uh Barry Nelson, but then, you know, as, as it goes on, they, they kind of bond and, and their relationship changes. And he's also being supportive of Jacqueline Bissett, who is the flight attendant on the plane. So the, it, it's a very complex, you know, interrelationship with these people. Then we have Jean Seberg, who's uh, the head customer relations agent. And she's her big thing is twofold. One, that she's found Helen Hayes, who is a, uh, a chronic stowaway on planes. And she plays a great character. And I think we're going to need to talk to her about her some more. But he also gets she also gets word from Lloyd Nolan, who's another that guy uh, that, you know, he thinks there's something suspicious going on with Van Heflin who this was his last movie, by the way, uh, 
Really? Yes. He he did he he didn't die soon after this. I think he was in some TV productions, but this was his last uh, film. Uh, and you know Van Heflin is down on his luck, and he's married to Maureen Stapleton, and he's decided he's going to blow up the plane so that his wife can collect the insurance on him. And Lloyd Nolan, who's a customs agent, sees him and knows that he's acting a little strange. And they they did a good job of establishing that Nolan kind of has a sense of people and, you know, can kind of see when people are a little too nervous or whatever. Uh, So they kind of figure out that something's going on. And then they get Helen Hayes to help them to try and, uh, you know, see if they can disable him from taking out the plane and there's an annoying guy who ruins everything for everybody uh, and you just want to beat the crap out of him so there's there's a whole lot going on and it's just edge of your seat even though it's slow moving the thing that i love about it is they made choices to insert subtle comedy at certain points in time this film does a really good job of doing things that are overt and covert in all kinds of emotion, right? So there's points in time where um, you even mentioned before, like, you know, what happens with the relationship with Jacqueline Bissett and Dean Martin, where there's a point in time where it's discovered by Dean Martin's wife, you know, by Vernon's wife, what happens. And they didn't make a choice to cause a big scene over that. She sees this happen and you see her reaction in a very visual sense, trusting the actress to portray it in a way that you get why she sleeps back because this is something that she's known that's been going on. It's been going on multiple times, but yet she appears that this one's different. There's something different about this and reality setting in for her. I loved the choice of the filmmakers Throughout this, whether it's comedy or whether it's something that's very serious, making different choices that there's certain sequences that need to be very over, very in your face, very dialogue driven. And other sequences where let's trust these this talent that we've got, because, my, my gosh, it is a cast because <laughs> um, there's not a bad one in the batch. This cast to deliver these things visually and, and through just showing through their face, through the way that they're carrying themselves, through their emotion. And that was something I really appreciated about this film. I I agree with you totally. And, you know, there's points where they are using a little exposition to explain things, but they don't go over the top with that. They they do have a lot of show, don't tell, which I I definitely appreciate. Uh, And a lot of it is, again, you know, we, we, we keep going back to the interactions between the people. Uh, Gene Seberg's character is basically uh, doing a questioning of, of Helen Hayes, who's Ada Quonset, the elderly stowaway woman. And she has Mel Bakersfield, Burt Lancaster, come in to sit in on it because she thinks it's so important. And you could see through the whole thing, he's just getting a kick out of it that, you know, she's explaining how she uh, manages to stow away. And he's just finding it amusing, whereas... Uh, Gene Seberg's, you know, very upset by it, uh, and and it's it's one of these things where, where they don't really tell you that they're doing it. They, you know, they don't have him, you know, patting her on the back and saying, "Oh, that's cool." You just see, you know, like a wry smile on his face every once in a while, and then when the scene ends, you know, she just makes a comment to to him about, you know, well, you know, you could have been a little bit more supportive there or something along those lines, uh, 
and and then you know she she just goes on to to trick uh the guy who she's uh you know who, who she's entrusted to and she manages to stow away on this plane after the whole thing using one of the methods that she just explained to them how she does it what i liked about gene seberg's role in this as tanya is they didn't restrict her to just being the, you know, arm candy of Burt Lancaster. Because they could have done that and, you know, kept that piece going and just kept her being in that role. And there were sequences where they were separated and she was taking on an active participant role in the story and showing what she does as a job. And that was something that I thought is for 1970. I'm like, wow, that's pretty innovative. They're like giving her, you know, some, I mean, because I'm recognizing when this film was shot, and I'm like, wow, that was pretty bold. Um, people have certain roles. Her character and Jacqueline Bissett's character both have active roles in this where they're really important. And you mentioned Helen Hayes. I think the same thing for her. It's like these are characters who it's not all the males that are the the driving force of this film, we have some very strong female portrayals that really moved this movie along and made me care about what I was watching, which I was really surprised by. They weren't background characters at all. And that there's a little bit of a contrast between Gene Seberg and Jacqueline Bissett also, though, because, you know, we mentioned how the two main male characters, both of their marriages are on the rocks. And Burt Lancaster, his wife, you know, openly acknowledges our marriage is over. You know, this, we've, we've just been kind of going through the motions. We need to separate, whatever. But he has not yet started his relationship with Gene Seberg. That's mm-hmm. something we just see developing over the course. You, you feel the chemistry between them throughout the movie, but they don't get together until the end when they're leaving and they decide to leave together. And you don't even know how that relationship is going to work out. But they don't, you know, that's just developing. Whereas Dean Martin's wife thinks their marriage is going to survive even though she knows he, you know, he has a wandering eye. But, you know, he's, in, you know, unknown to her, he's in a serious relationship with Jacqueline Bissett to the point where they're having, they're expecting a child now. And he's, you know, thrown off about that because we, you know, we, we learn that she's expecting when he learns. Uh, and obviously it's, it's a, a, you know, a shock to him. But, you know, clearly by the end of the movie, he comes to grips with it and he's ready to, to be with her and support her and do everything necessary. Uh, and his wife, you know, as you said, you know, subtly uh, sees it and, and understands what's going on. But it's, it, there's definitely a contrast between the level of relationship that they're doing. So we see these two marriages falling apart but we see them falling apart in very very different ways which i find to be just you know again it's a there's a subtlety to it that i enjoy and i think uh when i looked at some of the reviews of this they don't give it much credit for subtlety yeah you know i also give it credit for the choices like you mentioned lloyd nolan discovering what was happening with dio guerrero And I thought that was something that really was poignant because he discovers this and Gene Seberg takes it seriously. You know, and she's like, we've got to pursue this. This is something that's an issue and I need to bring it to, you know, to attention. And they do and they actively pursue it. What I loved about that was even though they know it, even though they did something from it, there was this, are they going to be able to stop it or are they not? And, you know, we can talk about where that goes um, when you're ready to, but one of the things that I really loved about that was that build of 
you know, that added this sense of suspense. Where is this going to go? What is going to happen there? And the pacing is critical for that. They kept flashing it because they moved on to other things and came back to it, moved on to other things and came back to it. That was something that the film did really well. It never stayed too long in any particular area, which is, the, I think, to the benefit that there were little pods of events happening throughout this that kept this movie, because it's a long movie, and it did not feel that way as I was watching it. It felt like it really cooked. And there's something to be said when you get to the end of it and you go, oh, it's done? Wow. that was." A... And then you realize how long the movie was, and for especially for a 1970 film, the pacing was really, really well done. So let, let's talk a little bit about Dio Guerrero and, and uh, Inez Guerrero. Uh, Van Heflin, I am familiar with Van Heflin from Shane, and I am familiar with Van Heflin from uh, 310 to Yuma. I'm not sure. I know I've seen him in other things, but there's nothing else that jumps to mind for me for him. But he always struck me as the upstanding, uh, you know, man of, of high morals who, who would always do the right thing because of the way he is in those two movies. Uh, and in this one, he's playing a very, very different part. You know, he, he's he's a down on his luck contractor who's just kind of like really lost all money and self-respect. Uh, you know, his, his wife, Maureen Stapleton, who does a wonderful job in this movie. Uh, you know, I just, I, I just mentioned Helen Hayes won the Best Supporting Actress, uh, which I, I'm very comfortable with having her having won it. But Maureen Stapleton also could have won it for this. She, she did a yeah. wonderful job. But she shows that she, you know, she's... She's going to stick with him through thick and thin. She's not, you know, she's not berating him. She's not trying to make him feel bad. She's just, you know, like trying to be supportive of him and his, excuse me, his efforts to to, to do better. Uh, although, you know, you could see that she's a little cynical, you know, when he says, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You could see, you know, this, this is a story that they've lived through before. Uh, but she eventually comes to realize what his plans are. And then she goes to the airport and she's practically like catatonic because uh, she's so upset that she can't find him and she knows what he's going to do. And then they find her wandering around the airport and, and you know, use her information to help themselves to figure this out. Uh, it, it's all really well done because initially they, they say, you know, we're going to just let Ada Quonset, the uh, stowaway, you know, we'll just let her go. And then, you know, the Italian police will pick her up when we land in Rome. But then they decide to use her to try to, to you know, disarm Dio Guerrero. And she actually helps them to the point where, you know, if not for one loudmouth interfering passenger, they would have been successful. Right. Uh, so, so there's, you know, it, it's just all interwoven so well. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, they, they really just built this sense of, are they going to pull this off? And that was something I loved about it. not knowing where it was going to go. I'm like, oh, my gosh, they might actually do this. And that was the thing that I think was great about this film. When you compare, I think we come to expect certain things in films that are disaster films these days, right? You expect, like, it's going to go in a certain direction. There's a certain foreboding that builds to... I don't want to say payoff, but an ending that we come to, like you can, it's predictable. I really didn't feel that this was predictable at all. 
Um, I felt that as it was going through, I was rooting for them. And I thought, well, maybe they're going to pull that off. And maybe this is going to happen. And maybe that's going to happen. And then similarly, I felt certain danger was going to lead to something horrid that didn't happen. And I thought that was something that was, it felt fresh about this film, where I thought the choices in it, I think because I've become so used to what, modern storytelling like does like there's kind of a a b and c that you come to expect this didn't do that and i it's it's really something i'm going to say again what i said earlier if you listen to this and you have not watched this recently watch it again because what it's done is really really fresh in comparison to modern films i guess maybe you know, we can argue that it feels dated because of the fact that it's not doing some of the things that are predictable. But um, that's something that I think it makes it a standout film. That's certainly one I'd recommend to people. If you haven't seen it, you should um, just because of the choices. You, you know what? One of the things that you got me just thinking about a little bit is one of the things I, I enjoy when they're able to do in a movie or a television series or something. And usually it has to be something where the characters, you know, have time to develop where, you know, a certain event is inevitable. You know in this movie, as you watch it, that this bomb has to go off. Because if the bomb doesn't go off, what, you know, you know what happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so you know it's going to, but the movie gets you totally rooting for them to stop it from happening. Even though you know it's going to happen. And in my mind, I'm, I'm just thinking about the TV show uh, Smallville when I was watching that, is mm -hmm. uh, the performance, uh, all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank on his name, the, the actor who played Lex Luthor. Uh, Michael Rosenbaum. Michael Rosenbaum. The performance he gave as, as Lex Luthor was so charismatic that I kept rooting for him to not go bad. <laughs> you yes. know? I kept wanting him to, to be a, to, to be the good guy. Uh, even though I knew it was inevitable, he had to go bad. He's Lex Luthor. So in this, you know, when when they get the, the bomb, the... the what you call it, the uh, attache case with the bomb in it away from him for that moment, you, you actually let out a sigh of relief because you're thinking, ah, oh, they did it. <laughs> and then, like I said, the loudmouth guy ends up getting it back to him, which you know has to happen again because otherwise, what you know, what did we watch this for two hours for? Well, I was thinking, and it's funny that you mentioned that. So this is the example of where maybe we watch it a little differently, and that's always fun about film, right? Because we all have our own personal experiences. I was thinking the weather was the, the ultimate villain in this. Mm. So I was figuring that the danger to the plane was going to be, like they they so much talked about the weather from the beginning of the film straight on through that like we shouldn't be taking, you know, planes shouldn't be taking off, we should close the airport. Um, there's weather, you know, where it's, it's like, how are we going to get these, these runways plowed? And I'm like, that was something that I thought they played up really well was the danger of like, how, how are they going to make the, keep them clean? So I, I get that. And that, you know, the money that's involved in that. So I, I was totally focused on that, that I was thinking the bomb was like a secondary problem that they were dealing with hmm. and the weather was actually going to be the primary problem. So, so in your mind, they could have disarmed him and still had the disaster film aspect to it. Correct. I was thinking, like, you know, maybe they disarm him and, you know, the whole issue is these – I'm thinking the plane's going to start crashing because of the weather because um, it was clearly the winds and the visibility was terrible and 
um, we were seeing that weather was just getting worse. So I didn't know where that was going. And I was thinking, wow, maybe that is the ultimate foil in this. So what was great about it is the way that the bomb was handled was like intriguing and suspenseful and shocking to me with how abrupt it was. Interesting. Because, because to your point, like it looks like Dean Martin, you know, Vernon is getting through and everything that they planned is paying off. And you're like, is it going to happen? And I still didn't think they were out of the woods with that. So it wasn't, you know, that I was just like rock solid that Dio was going to be, you know, listening and make it through but when it happened and how it happened was i think to me just as intriguing because it was it was a i mean (laughs) it's gonna sound like a pun but it was like when it happened it was bang (laughs) well you know and they did they did a nice little job with you know the chekhov's gun uh thing where where they had the discussion beforehand about if a portion of the hull was you know broken through that it was going to cause the uh, what you call it, the explosive decompression, and it was going to, you know, pull things out and all of that. So they had that conversation beforehand. So you needed to see that happen now. Yeah, yeah. And and they did it. They did it very effectively because he takes the bomb into the lavatory and sets it off there. So it, they saved themselves from having to do the effects of the bomb physically creating the uh, the break in the hull. But then once the bomb goes off, now we get the, you know, the the aftermath of what that causes, including, you know, basically causing Jacqueline Bissett's character, Gwen, to, you know, almost lose her life. Uh, And I think that's ultimately the thing that has Vernon realized that this is, you know, this is where I need to be. This is who I need to be with. So that, you know, again, a lot going on, a lot of little things happening. You mentioned the other captain, too, and I thought that was an intriguing relationship between him and Dean Martin, where he's a family guy. And they were they were talking about, you know, he was talking about his life and why he was loyal to his wife and, and what led him to that. And he was talking about the fact that he almost lost three of their kids. So he had a lot of kids. Yeah, I think he, he said like, he had seven kids, four were planned and three weren't. Right. And, and um, Dean asked him the question, he's like, you know, hey, you know, did you ever come up with a, did you ever think of another possibility with those kids or another way of handling those three that were unplanned? And he's like, no, and they wound up being, you know, my my favorite kids or my most successful kids or my best kids. I'm poorly paraphrasing what he said, but, you know, he was really talking about how those surprise kids wound up being the true joys of his family. Yeah, I think he said something and, to the effect of, you know, he loves all his kids, but those three ended up being his favorite, something along those yes. lines. And And that, like, totally, you know, you can see the wheels turning and that's where this is where acting was tremendous in this because you saw the effect visually on on vernon and dean martin wow did he play a strong role in this of of just a wide variety of of acting moments and that was like you you knew like okay his whole thinking about gwen is we've already seen it evolving it's continuing to evolve here and it was through different sequences. I, I just thought that was just such a great sequence. Agreed, agreed. I, you know, again, I think there's a lot, a lot of dialogue here and a lot of uh, 
character moments and some of it is dialogue and some of it is just facial expressions and you know the way the body you know body movements and things like that that i think really are what make this movie this is not die hard you know this isn't you know sit on the edge of your seat every second because there's action going on at every moment it's it's a high stakes thing but it's more high stakes based on character than it is on action and i kind of like that and i and i i like that it's very different from what we got later this isn't just you know we didn't just get cookie cutter versions of this this is this is a movie that kind of sits it, it does stand alone even with its sequels and we're going to kind of touch on the sequels in a couple of minutes uh but you know that there's there's a lot about this and, and part of it i think is what i mentioned early on that this is kind of the you know the the last gasps of old hollywood Mm-hmm. And you know things tended to be slicker after this, and and you know there's definitely more action. You know, as I said, uh, you know I kind of planning on doing other disaster movies, and you know uh, one of the movies that I'm going to do is uh, the Poseidon Adventure, which is a personal favorite of mine. I'm not going to, you know, I'm certainly not saying that in any way it's a lesser movie, but it definitely did not mirror what they did in this one. There's a lot more action in that one, and, and a lot more. Uh, well, there's a much higher body count, uh, and and it's it's very very different. So I like the fact that you know we change. We don't just necessarily do the same thing over and over again. Uh, although I think uh, with sequels to this movie, and I'm going to mention that now anyway, because Sean and I have already talked that uh, down the road a little bit, we're going to do one episode where we hit on the three sequels to this: Airport 75, 77, and 79. And I think they did tend to become a little bit more cookie cutter. But we're going to see. I haven't watched any of those movies in years. So maybe maybe I'll feel differently about them once I rewatch them. Uh, but this one, I still feel like it stands alone. And another thing we've talked about doing is the movie Airplane. Uh, and if you look at the movie Airplane, it's not really parodying this movie so much. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of scenes in that movie that you say, oh, clearly that's, you know, that's taking a, a scene from Airport and, and, and you know, making fun of it. I, I think it's making fun of the later disaster movies uh, more so. The ones that became more formulaic than this one. I don't think this is a formulaic movie because it is so character driven. I agree. Uh, I would actually argue that Airplane 2 maybe have certain elements in it that is a little bit, you know, Sonny Bono and stuff like that, that may be more parody of hmm. this than uh, Airplane 1. Now, you and I, I think, have been, you know, we've been gushing over this movie <laughs> to a large degree, which which I enjoy. You and I do that a lot. Uh, but this, the critics were not as kind to this. Uh, I'm just looking at on, on the Wikipedia page. Roger Ebert gave the film two stars out of four and faulted a predictable plot and characters that talk in regulation B-movie cliches, like no B-movie you've seen in 10 years. Gene Siskel gave the film two and a half stars out of four and reported that while the theater audience cheered at the climax, it's a long and torturous road to the applause. Blocking the path are speeches that promote the industry dialogue that ranks among the silliest in memory and a labored plot that tells you everything twice. See, now, clearly we disagree with those. Uh, Well, it's funny that they mention predictability. And, And it's the funny part, I think, where maybe at the time they had a certain expectation on where this was going to go 
And I will say with me and my expectations for movies, and I think at this point we're safe to get a little more spoilery as far as where the ending goes. Sure. Um, I think we've already kind of spoiled anyway. (laughs) Yes, but I mean, at the end, there's points in time when the bomb goes off, right? That's the beginning of now the next phase of the film. I mean, it's like this film has multiple phases. So the bomb goes off, it's like, bam, like this happens really, really quick. And now all of a sudden I'm worried for people in a way that I was worried before, but now an event has happened that has, it's a change catalyst. So I didn't expect how quick, like it was abrupt and boom, it just happened, which I thought was a great choice because that's how something like that would happen. Guy comes out of the bathroom, freaks him out. He, he's like, now at this point, he's no longer, he was getting a little bit more calm and rational. And this has now put him over the edge again and he's ready to end it and does. Um, So that sequence happens. I'm worried for Jacqueline Bissett. I'm now we've got a plane that's damaged and we're seeing cracks in the ceiling. And I'm thinking at some point in time that back's coming off, you know, so I'm, I don't know where this is going. I figure they're already. And again, I'm in the mindset that weather is their real enemy here. They're dealing with the winds and the snow and all of that. How is that going to factor into this plane trying to land? You know, I'm figuring when they try to land, this back's rough flying off. And like, there's going to be, I, I was expecting a death count in this mm. because of how these films typically go today, right? It's, it's all about the death count. So I love the fact that to me, the part that was surprising and intriguing was the fact that I'm on the edge of my seat. Who's it going to, who's first to go. And when it's not happening, I'm like, wow, is this refreshing? Because the danger never left. Like, I never thought people were safe. I just, I figured, like, at some point in time, some shock thing is going to happen. Uh, you know, other than Dio Guerrero, I thought I, I thought Jacqueline Bissett was, like, the baby was going to be lost. I thought, you know, I mean, there were, you know, she's pregnant. I thought the baby was, like, for sure. Right. I, I thought there was a good possibility. I figured she was going to live because the end result was going to be that we would find out that the baby, there was that unfortunate event that this, this caused the death of the baby. Um, I didn't see the ending where like this, you know, she and Dean Martin were going to, she was going to the hospital and Dean Martin was going to go there. And I'm thinking to myself, they might be okay. Like, and this might actually actively change Dean Martin's character, Vernon to be a very loyal husband to her and this you know this could be a change catalyst for him i didn't see that being a thing at all i did feel that at the end you know like that this might be life-changing for him and for her Mm -hmm. but um i i love the fact that that was the surprise for me when they were going out and so many other ones like burt lancaster's character where it goes with um gene seberg berg i i didn't i didn't expect tanya and mel to wind up together the way that they did and I loved like how this all went. And George Kennedy, George Kennedy was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Now he's the one uh, through line in, in all the airport movies because he's in every one of them. Mm-hmm. And no, you know nobody else is in the kid. Just you know, again, I haven't watched anything beyond this for the purposes of reviewing it, so I can't say. But when I kind of just checked out the the, the movies that are coming. 
the last one, which is Airport 79, the Concord, uh, when I saw the cast, it almost looks like it's an episode of The Love Boat. So we, we're gonna, I think we're going to have an interesting time going over those particular okay. movies. Uh, but again, I, I, I'm, we're not there yet. Uh, but George, George Kennedy is just, there's something about him that, that always was enjoyable. You know, I, I always think of him as, you know, the cool hand Luke and, and this and just, he's great with that. You know, I, and, and the confidence he has too, because, uh, one of his lines that I loved in this was, uh, when, when Burt Lancaster's, you know, uh, asking him if he's going to be able to get the uh, the plane off the runway. And he says, didn't you promise me that you were going to get me a box of cigars if I get it off? And he's like, yeah. He says, so what are you doing? Go buy me my cigars. <laughs> <laughs> that was that goes back to what you were saying earlier, right, about the friends hanging out, though. Yeah. I mean, there is that there's that relationship between them where clearly Mel's recognizing at this point in time that if he – George doesn't – see, I thought that George's – like attempt could go horribly wrong, you know, and then we've got a, a broken plane on the runway. Mm. Um, so I'm, I was watching all this, you know, gripped with what was going on on the ground as much as what was going on in the sky, you know, what, cause I didn't know that like George Kennedy was going to pull it off. I, I thought there was going to be a possibility of it. So I was rooting for him. I wasn't totally like one side or the other, but the, the point of building danger and suspense I thought, well, you know, what happens if, you know, he screws up and the tires, you know, can't go or, you know, something breaks. And now we've got this plane on the runway with a plane coming down really fast. What is that? What is that landing going to look like with an obstruction on the runway? So I thought there was a possibility that they were, you know, the plows were going to have to move the plane or something like that. And I love that. I felt that that danger was present. Whether you know whether it how how it played out didn't ruin it for me at all. It was it was being taken through this emotional journey of they got me, they got me convinced that there was a possibility of the other option happening at multiple times throughout this film, and that's really the critical key to it is to building a suspenseful film. Right? It doesn't matter where they take you. It's that you believe that there's more than one path that this film can go. Yeah, true, very true, and and as I said, you know, at that point, and I didn't even put together the thought that oh, if he screwed up, it could cause the plane to crash. Uh, I I took it as you know he was playing a very very expensive game, uh, trying to get it off you know under its own power instead of uh, you know in, instead instead of just taking the easy way out and having it pushed off. Uh, but but you're right. But you know, even even with my perspective on it, I still felt the tension of the scene. And he had another great line there uh, when when uh, when he does finally move the plane and whoever it is that's assisting him, and I don't remember the character particularly well, but whoever's assisting him says, you know, you just broke every rule in the book or something like that. And he says it's one of the great things about the seven oh seven. It can't read. <laughs> so. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning the score in this, and that's another thing that just kind of feels very old Hollywood to me. Uh, the score was, it was the last uh, the last score by Alfred Newman, not Alfred E. Newman of Mad Magazine, Alfred Newman, who, uh, who apparently was nominated for 45 Academy Awards uh, over, the, over his career. So he had quite a few. I'm just trying to see what movies we would just, would jump out at us from him. 
uh, Miracle on 34th Street, 12 o'clock high, Prisoner of Zenda, uh, there's, a, there's King and I, South Pacific, How the West Was Won, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Camelot, uh, but this this was his last movie uh, of over 200 movies that he did, apparently. Uh, and it's very, to me, it's very hit and miss. Uh, there's points in it where the drama of the score seems overblown. And there's points where it's exactly on the money. So I, I did kind of feel that it kind of went back and forth a little bit. But overall, I did appreciate the the tension that it would create. To your point, I, I, it's almost like um, I don't want to jump to when we talk about Airplane, but if there's one of the things that Airplane does parody that could perhaps be from this, it's um, Airplane does use the score to over-dramatize. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm just looking here. It said, uh, the American Film Institute ranked his score for how the West was won uh, as number 25 on their list of the 25 greatest film scores. Ten of Newman's other scores were also nominated. Wuthering Heights, Hunchback of Notre Dame, How Green Was My Valley, The Song of Bernadette, Captain from Castile, uh, All About Eve, The Robe, Love is a Mendy Splendid Thing, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and Airport. So this was this was actually nominated to be one of the greatest film scores of all time, so I might be underrating it a little. But uh, all that said, uh, I don't think I can even give you any kind of... Uh, any drama whatsoever. I rank this as Jaws. I thought this was a great movie. I love this movie. Yeah. And where I'm at, I'm at Jaws too. I'm at Jaws. I mean, Jaws. I'm actually, I want to be very careful. You're at Jaws I'm also. Like, yes, I'm at Jaws also. <laughs> um, I There's a part of me that wants to say Jaws 1.5 only because I've seen it once. And I deliberately didn't watch it a second time because I, I was so impacted by my first viewing that I'm like... I want to talk about this as a first-time viewer, which because I thought that was a unique perspective to bring to this conversation. So I did that on purpose, where I'm like, let me just leave it with this feeling, because there's there's a part of me that wanted to watch it again, just and I normally like to do that with any discussion, but I'm like, no, let's go with the the. And so for anybody listening to this, this is if you haven't watched this before, I'd watch it watch it clean. I mean, I think it's a it's a great way to jump into this film. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's definitely Jaws, and it's uh, it's an interesting sort of thing because I see myself wa- I do want to watch it again, which says something with its length. I really want to watch this again, um, which that that to me I think is an important for me to put it in the Jaws category. Rewatchability is a thing that's pretty important. About I agree. I, I think rewatchability is is a key factor. If it's something, there there are precious few movies that I have to acknowledge that are so great that I have to give them a Jaws, but I understand that I really, you know, they're so uncomfortable to watch that I don't want to watch them a second time. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, but but for the most part, for a movie to get a, ranked as a Jaws for me, uh, it has to be something that I, that I have no problem sitting and watching over and over again. And, I, and you're, there's a handful that would be Jaws that I, I can think of ones off the top of my head that I'm like, I don't know that I need to see that movie again, but boy, is it one that I'd recommend. The one the one I use as an example is uh, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was a terrific movie. I, I think it's a Jaws-level movie. But it's just so intense at points, and it's so 
sad at points that it's I, I don't really have a desire to see it again even though I, I totally acknowledge how great it is so your choice uh all that said uh once again sean it was absolutely my pleasure to have you on again and uh i look forward to us going through the other airplane airport excuse me airport movies uh i will be surprised if there's a jaws rating among them uh you know i'm hoping that there might be a jaws 2 in there uh, but we're gonna see you know I, I i will watch them with an open mind and i hope you'll do the same and we're gonna we're gonna bang out three of them in in one one review well with the theme of this podcast it's an interesting approach i mean the fact that we've we've we basically started with the jaws of this grouping and i think i've seen airport 77 before uh, I don't remember for sure, and I won't know until I watch them again, like if, if I've seen any of them other than 77. So I'm looking forward to watching them and really having this conversation with with the Jaws rating scale. I, I am too. I saw Jaws 75 in the movie theater with friends. I remember seeing it back then, and I vaguely remember it. Most, most, my most clear memory is that it had Karen Black and Charlton Heston, but I don't really remember details. Uh, I, and then Airport 77 has uh, Jack Lemon. So, I mean, there's, there are some good actors. Uh, but like I said, by, by the time we get to Airport 79, you know, I noticed uh, I, I saw a coming attraction for it. And, you know, they're going over the cast and I see Charo. You know, and it's like, OK, that's what made me feel like it was a Love Boat episode. But, you know, we're going to see. Exciting. <laughs> it, you know, it may be one of these movies where it, it's it's doesn't have the gravitas of of this one, but it's just fun. I don't know. We're gonna find out. I'm looking forward to. I'm I'm glad we're gonna do them. I, I'm looking forward to talking about them. Okay. Uh, I always like to close out with you, just giving a quick uh, explanation of where people can find you if they're looking for you when you're not on Is It Yours. So um, Raging Bullets is uh, my other podcast that I do. It's RagingBullets.com. And uh, actually, for other listeners out there, too, I, I also do a podcast now. I'm part of an ensemble. We do a podcast called CBOT Run, and it's the letter C-B-O-T-R-U-N.com. And that's a, a K-12 elementary education, cyber or K-12 education, cybersecurity podcast. So um, two podcasts that I do. Raging Bullets is a DC Comics fan podcast. And most recently, we've been talking about the big DC event, Dark Crisis. So if you're into that, uh, please feel free to join us. And, you know, very similar to what we did here, um, we, we enjoy having in-depth conversation about the books that we're talking about. So I uh, hope you'll check us out. I would, you know, always recommend that, that people listen to you because you're an enjoyable listener and you always have a positive take on things that's not to say and i just want to clear up that's not to say you just universally like everything but you still always have a positive view on how you take how you watch things uh which i think is always something that i appreciate because sometimes i have a tough time doing that it's it's not it's not as easy as it looks well it's going to be fun to talk about these other airport movies because um like this one set a very high bar, so it's going to be it's going to be, inter be interesting to talk about the sequels. All right, well that's going to be a little bit down the line because, like I said, between now and then, I'd like to to do and I have uh, you know no no offense to my friend Sean, but I have other people who are going to do the Poseidon Adventure and the Towering Inferno with me, and I'd like to probably try and squeeze in Earthquake too before we re revisit the airport movies. But you know we will get that done a little bit down the line. 
That's perfect. I can't wait to come back. All right. And as always, I look forward to having you. And I look forward to having everybody listen. And I hope you've enjoyed listening, people. And we'll see you next time. Now, whatever she's done, you don't have to be so rough. Please don't interfere. Ask the captain to reconsider. I don't want to be handed over to the Italian police. You should have thought of that before. Now get in your seat. All I ask is to be sent back. Please don't hand me over in a foreign country. Can't you see the lady's upset? <laughs> I told you to get out of it. Now sit down and be quiet. Stop it, you're hysterical. Oh, yeah. Help me. Please help me. Help me. No! Oh, no! No! Personal property, you've got no right to take it! No! 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 You stay where you are! Don't try to get any closer. Guerrero, listen to me. Do you hear me? Listen. They know about you on the ground. Your insurance is no good. It's canceled. It's worthless. No one has ever gotten away with a thing like this. No one has ever collected a penny. You won't help your family. You'll only hurt them. You'll kill yourself for nothing if you explode that bomb. Bob, stay where you are. Your family will be hounded and blamed. Listen to me. Think. Guerrero, let these people sit down. And we'll talk. I promise until you're ready, no one will come close. Sit down. Guerrero, you know now that you've failed. The only way you can help your family is to give me that case. Give me the case. If you do, I promise that no one on this plane will hurt you. He's got a bomb!